Welcome to episode 20 of Lessons Via Leaders, a show where we bring you a new entrepreneur, founder, or thought leader each and every week. I'm so happy to have you join us today. Today on the show, we have Megan O'Connor. Megan is an entrepreneur that enjoys solving complex problems with a societal impact, especially related to education or the future of work. As the founder of Clark, which was acquired by Noodle, Megan set out to provide educators with the economic opportunities they deserve by giving them tools to start tutoring businesses. Under her leadership as CEO, Clark served thousands of educators and raised funding from Lightspeed Venture Partners, Rethink Education, Foundation Capital, and more. Before Clark, Megan was the founding partner of New York-based startup studio Human Ventures and director of development at the nonprofit Pencils of Promise. Currently, Megan is serving as entrepreneur-in-residence at Kaplan, one of the world's largest and most diverse education providers. In this episode, Megan reveals what inspires her work in the education realm. Stay tuned as we discuss how higher education is changing because of COVID and all the other recent developments. Plus, Megan predicts the future of online education and how college will evolve. I had a great time chatting with Megan, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, today we have Megan O'Connor. Megan, thank you so much for joining Lessons Via Leaders. Appreciate you being here. Well, thanks so much for having me. Of course, of course. Real quick, for the folks that don't know, you can give a quick background. Um, you're right now, you are EIR at Kaplan. Uh, before that, you were the CEO of High Clark, which is an online tutoring platform. Um, but for the folks listening, could you give a quick background on your story and how you got to this point? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. My job title is entrepreneur in residence, and it kind of sounds like a made up job. But uh, what it means to be an EIR for short uh, is that you build new products and you bring a startup mentality to a sometimes large company, Kaplan being one of them. And so I'm experimenting with new product lines uh, for the organization. Prior to that, I was a founder and CEO of High Clark, as you mentioned, uh, cloud-based business management software for the tutoring industry. Loved working with all the incredible tutors and now more than ever, they're in the spotlight as it relates to the education industry. Um, But I've always worked at the intersection of software and education. So my career has been uh, multifaceted through different aspects of how technology can unlock opportunities for students and educators. And I am particularly passionate about provider-facing tools, things that can make it easier for teachers to do their jobs. That's awesome. And what sparked the interest in education in the first place? Like everything you're doing now is surrounding ed tech, but I'm curious, what was that initial spark that made you go down this path? I um, was raised by a single mom who is a public school teacher, who is still a public school teacher to this day and currently teaching remotely uh, in San Jose, California. And so the lens I know education through is through my mom. And when I was working in the technology industry and starting to think about entrepreneurial opportunities in the space, just 100% my uh, brain gravitated towards those things that are happening in education. And what had previously been a sector that was maybe seen as less um, attractive to work in or to innovate in then maybe fintech or things that were happening um, in different like viral um, networks like photo sharing apps I'm really happy to say that you know what's been happening right now with how the world has changed has put a spotlight on the important of importance of ed tech so okay. it's gone from being kind of the ugly stepchild of the tech sector to the one that's front and center that's awesome that's awesome and again you were former CEO of high Clark uh, can you tell us a little bit about high Clark and again that that company was acquired by Noodle. Um, yeah. 
we'd love to just give a quick background on hi Clark and then I would love to talk about that whole process of acquisition because a lot of the people that are listening to this podcast are entrepreneurs they're at different phases of their company and obviously the big dream is one day they're gonna get you know their company acquired one day so I'd love to, to hear from someone that's experienced it firsthand what was that initial inspiration for hi Clark and then obviously I could tie it into the end result which was getting it acquired yeah, so Clark is solving a problem that a lot of independent educators have, which is it's very difficult for you to be a great educator and run your business at the same time. And so tutors are at the forefront of that stress. And now with the changes that we're seeing in education, you know, teachers going into pods and helping families in their homes, it continues to be, you know, an independent business that you're running while simultaneously trying to just do great things in terms of student outcomes. So Clark is the software for you to run your own independent tutoring business. Um, the idea did come again from my mom because she is like many, a public school teacher who also runs a tutoring business because um, fun fact, teachers in the US don't make enough money to get by. And uh, as a result, have to have a side gig. And there's many side hustles that exist within the tutoring, I'm sorry, within the education industry, tutoring being one of them. So that was a problem that Clark uh, set out to solve. And my mom actually was one of our very first users. Um, and it will continue to scale to both small and large tutoring businesses throughout um, the US-based ecosystem. In terms of being acquired, um, I can say, you know, uh, it, it's an interesting process. It doesn't take a path uh, that you thought it would. It's filled with twists and turns and unexpected, and it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Um, but if I were to give one piece of advice for entrepreneurs who are thinking, you know, the company that I'm building makes sense to be acquired by a larger company down the line. By all means, there's plenty of companies that should go on to be lifestyle businesses or will do fine on their own profits, or they themselves could, you know, become a big unicorn and grow exponentially. Um, but if you're thinking that your company makes sense underneath the umbrella of a bigger company, it's important that you start those conversations early on. Um, get to know that company. It's kind of this misnomer that you should be super secretive and not let them know what you're doing. At the end of the day, acquirers are much bigger than you. If they wanted to really copy you, they would. Um, so it's better to just create a really strong relationship out the gate and just show that you can um, have quicker returns on innovation. You can build things faster. You can experiment with less risk because those are the things that are attractive to a big company um, when they're looking at startups to acquire. For sure. Did, did Noodle approach you or did you approach Noodle? How did those conversations start? So unfortunately, based on the nature of acquisition, I can't talk too much about this process, but I would say that my recommendation to entrepreneurs is out the gate, identify who the people are that you might want to have longer term relationships with and keep them uh, abreast of your progress. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love that advice. You don't want to play things too close to the vest at the end of the day. Most likely they're thinking about a lot of the same things you're thinking about. And does it make sense mm -hmm. at the end of the day for the the companies to join forces versus like, hey, sign this NDA or, you know, I don't want to go down this path until we get more comfortable. I think that that's really good advice. Um, so you're now currently EIR at Kaplan. Uh, again, you gave a brief description about what an EIR does, uh, but can you kind of take us into the day-to-day -day of, of an EIR? It's, it's a more and more of a popular position these days. A lot of venture capital firms have EIRs. Um, so just really quickly, can you tell us about the day-to-day -day of that role? 
Yeah, so it is a really fun role. And you're right that EIRs are really popular at venture capital firms. And what that means is that typically they'll bring in a, a former founder, someone like myself whose company had been acquired, and comes in and starts to experiment with some new ideas. Um, VC funds like to do that because it means that once that entrepreneur has a new idea for their next business, they can be one of the first investors in it. Um, within a big companies, it's starting to become really popular to mirror that same model and bring in former founders of startups um, and have them start to experiment with new product lines. And that's exactly what I do at Kaplan. Um, you're seeing it happen at lots of big companies. Um, I'm excited to be the first one actually at Kaplan. And what I do is I look at product opportunities for uh, the company in markets that they haven't yet touched. So how can we take a startup mentality, really truly like run a mini startup within the big company um, to test things quickly? When you're a big company, um, kind of like what I was saying earlier about being an acquirer, sometimes it can just be hard for you to do things and take risks and move quickly because you've got these big legacy products and this, you know, big fancy brand behind it. Um, and so what I do as an EIR is really experiment every day. So what we're doing right now is just identifying some of the ways that education is changing in the face of COVID and finding out how can we serve students um, faced with that change um, and do so in a way where we can be agile, quick, and just really respond quickly to what the market's feedback is. Nice. Is there any specific area that you're really excited about within that, that scope? There's so many different areas that you can tackle, but what specifically at, at Kaplan are you really excited about that you're seeing or working on? Yeah, well, I mean, with all things related to higher education, I think we can agree that just the norms that we've grown up with in terms of getting a great test score, doing well in high school, and then applying to college only to go there for four years in person, like that model probably will never be the same. Um, sure. And parts of that, it's really sad, will fall apart. But quite honestly, like the innovation that will come as a result of the COVID shakeup, um, I think yeah. ultimately will be very positive for higher ed. And the one area related to that that I am so interested in is the concept of career readiness. Um, and that is what we're doubling down on with a new product that we're actually launching next week called Boost by Kaplan. And the idea being that too often students end up in college without the end in mind, meaning they had worked so hard to get into college that they didn't stop to think, what do I want to get out of college? Because at the end of the day, college is supposed to produce, you know, a career path for you, right? You're supposed to get your first job right after you graduate. However, that wasn't the trend we were seeing here in the US. We were seeing up until now students graduating without the tangible skills to get their first job. Um, entry level employers were reporting that the candidates they were seeing were not prepared for the workforce. And moreover than not, students were picking majors only to change them later on, which would then increase the amount of time they spend in college and increase obviously the financial investment or financial aid uh, debt that they put themselves into. So how we can help students understand what career fields are of interest to them and planning their higher ed experience to be intentional based on that interest um, is something I'm super passionate on. I think we're going to see a lot of great byproducts of that, one of which being a lot more graduates employed. For sure, for sure. And uh, how do you see technology playing a role again in this post-COVID world as we <laughs> shift into all these different online education platforms? Like, It's tough when people think online education, they usually think of courses they think of now we think of zoom classes because that's like the mm -hmm. big thing like all these kids are now being taught via zoom google classroom has its own platform which you know my daughter is on google classroom my kid Probably is on right now right literally right now yeah uh my my son is on a platform called seesaw 
uh, and then Seesaw feeds into uh, Zoom or Google Classroom, depending on whatever the, the curriculum is. So, I mean, how do you see this taking shape? Because, you know, again, you ask 10 different people what online education is, you get 10 different answers. Where do you see the future of online education going? Is it more like courses, like, you know, like a Coursera kind of template? Do you see more live instruction? Um, is is college going to be this thing eventually that's location agnostic and people can attend courses from wherever? Curious to get your take on just online education in general, where you think it's heading. Yeah, well, I would say what's happening right now in the online education space is quite simply, um, how do we try to replicate what's happening in the classroom in right. students' homes? And that right. is not going to work. And people are going to realize that during this fall semester of the 2020-2021 school year. What will end up happening in terms of the evolution is that we will recognize the fact that it's not about just trying to mirror what happened in person is around thinking through an entirely different model. So while we're going to see a lot of live sessions happening now, we're going to move to a much more asynchronous model in the future. Why? Because there's probably plenty of students who are at home with a sibling like your kids are, and you can only pay attention to one of them at a time. What if they both had right. to be engaging with their computers and both needed help with, um, from you at the same time? Right. It's just quite simply not going to work. Um, so some of the same norms that we're seeing changed in terms of the way that the remote workforce is adapting, we'll also see happen in education. The other thing that I think we're going to end up seeing is just way more diverse, um, got, how can I say it, like sets of things that students do at the same time. So previously going to school, especially in person, uh, takes up a lot of time in the same way, like it used to take me a lot of time to walk to the subway, take the subway, walk from the subway to my office, like all that's time. Now I have free. Um, as a result, we're going to see students take their courses through their primary school, but then also add on top a lot of other cool stuff. As you know, the internet is basically boundless in terms of the things it has available to students to learn. Um, yep. So that's exciting because I think we're going to see a lot more kids, you know, going through their junior um, high school experience and then also taking a coding boot camp on the side because they can or doing some other creative interests online as well. The issue there is it kind of becomes difficult for a student to to choose what to do. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have choice paralysis every time I go into the masterclass uh, main page, like there are a million things that I want to take. And so I think we're going to see a rise of kind of this new product come into this space, which is going to be this great curator. It's separate from your in-classroom teacher. It's somebody who's helping you pick and choose from all the diverse options that are out there to specifically align with your students' interests. Um, the other thing that I'm finding is that the production quality is slowly starting to increase even for kindergarten classes. And that's going to be a necessity because keeping kids engaged while they're sitting in a chair within their own home, you know, sometimes just like a couple feet away from their toys or someone to play with or outside, um, it's difficult to keep students engaged. And so we're going to see a lot more opportunity for kind of multimedia design production yep. to engage in the typical, you know, algebra lesson. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's all these different platforms that even are now being built, integrated into Zoom that's making online education just a little bit more engaging. There's like, you know, obviously the green screens, we see all the green screens and things like that, but I've noticed a lot of different integrations that's helping on that front. Are, are you are you concerned at all with the amount of screen time that kids are getting right now in the education space? Because my kids, again, they love their screens. They got all kids mm -hmm. do at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and they start their, their class, I think, really well. In the first 15 minutes, they're engaged. But then 
there's a lot of um, there's I think it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. There's too many kids. You have the the Brady Bunch view on Zoom. So looking at all the kids, different reactions when the teacher says something. Um, and I just feel after 15, 20 minutes, they start to fade. Are, should we be more cognizant of the amount of screen time kids are getting in, in this phase? And uh, is is that something that the future of education has to play close attention to is just the amount of technology that we're doing? Yes. And I wouldn't say that currently there is an answer for the amount right. of screen time that students are spending because right now it's the only way to connect to the resources, the curriculum, the content, and to provide student or their teachers with any kind of insight to how they're doing. Yep. What I'm hoping ends up happening is that there is clear instruction, and this is an example of one of the things that will have to change from the way that we're currently running online education is really find a way to push students away from the computer, do lessons handwritten or maybe on a tablet that's not connected to um, the internet and do that and be able to upload it for future feedback. Um, because we do need students to step away from their computer, we do need to give them time to think creatively away from the computer. The only way that's gonna actually work is if teachers build that into the way that they're doing their lessons. Um, so I'm a big fan of having particular lessons where they say like, this is something you're gonna do in your notebook. You might have to take pictures of it and then upload it into Canvas afterwards. Or, you know, I want you to do math problems on a whiteboard and we're going to have to find a way for you to do, um, again, some sort of screenshot or pictures of your work, but in, have multi-mediums because the burnout is going to be so real after this school year. Yes, I agree. And I am worried about the long-term effects that that could have on attention span and just overall behavior. Um, we want to shift back mm -hmm. real quick to uh, higher education and college. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I'm still, the jury's still out on this and I'm still on the fence. But for me personally, I went to Florida State University. Uh, I got my degree in creative writing. Uh, and that was basically me, again, trying to figure out how to pick a major. I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time. Creative writing sounded interesting. Sure, creative writing. So I picked that major. I graduated with that. I ended up leaving college after graduating and doing nothing with that degree. I started a startup uh, and mm -hmm. startup eventually got acquired, but I scaled that business. A lot of my peers have done nothing with their college degrees. Uh, again, they've gone into the entrepreneurial field or the self-made businesses and things like that. I have this debate with my wife. Um, again, my, my parents, there was no real choice. I had to go to college. There was really, you know, there was kind of one path. You got to get a college degree, got to figure out what you want to do. My dad was a lawyer. My mom wanted to be a, a doctor or an accountant or something like that. That was somewhat respectable of a title. Yeah. Um, you know, so even, even when I started my company, my startup, uh, my mom still never knew how to tell people what I did. You know, it was like, yeah, my, my son runs an internet company. It's like Google, but not really. Like he's, she had no idea. <laughs> Sounds know? a little bit like how my mom describes my job too. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so I, I'm curious to your take on this because I told my wife, I said, if, if my kids were passionate about something and like they wanted to start their own business or they just didn't want to go to college for whatever reason, I wouldn't force them to go to college because, you know, I'm definitely a product of someone that had a degree, Spent a lot of money and time in, in higher education and college, but I've not used it for anything because I didn't know what I wanted to be until later on in life. How do you see college evolving? I know this is a really hot topic because, again, yeah. the social norms of it is, is changing really rapidly. When my kids are 18, which has been 10 years from now, uh, where do you think college will be in the, the perception of higher education? Because, again, it's shifting so rapidly. I'd love to hear your take on that. Is it going to be completely different than what it is now, less prioritized? 
It is going to be totally different. Um, I do think it'll be prioritized, but in a completely different form. Um, one of the things that we were tracking at Kaplan prior to the whole pandemic was just the fact that students, like I said, were not feeling like college was giving them the tangible skills to enter the workforce. And, you know, right. by all means, there's lots of things we get out of college, socialization, lots of, you know, soft skills, et cetera. But at the end of the day, employment is extraordinarily important. And that is supposed to be the end product of your higher ed experience. And yep. so as those rates were decreasing in terms of graduates being able to successfully enter the workforce, there started to be a real demand on these higher ed institutions to produce, you know, an educated candidate for an, the workforce. So what we're going to end up seeing is that trend completely magnified given the state of the world that we're in right now. And students are going to demand the ability to enter the workforce coming out of their higher ed experience. Students are going to demand also a lot more career exposure. So I think we're going to see a trend in terms of the people who are doing the hiring in the world um, entering the classroom and universities really prioritizing different tracks internally that help people understand, here's how you become an engineer. Here's how you become a marketer. Here's how you like insert the blank versus much more of like the theoretical types of formats that we see um, in traditional higher ed settings. And uh, and forgive me if you said this uh, in, in that answer because it got cut off for, for about 10 mm -hmm. seconds. But oh, okay. do you see that replicating also off online as well? Or do you feel like, again, that's going to be like, for example, uh, is my alma mater, Florida State University, going to offer an online track for those things because they just they got to keep up with the times or do you still think that's going to be reserved more for the on-campus experience and they'll evolve or is it both? We're going to need to see a lot more go online. And I think that's an exciting right. opportunity for, you know, colleges like your alma mater because they can now attract a students from much further away, right? They don't have to worry about moving in order to enter the classroom anymore. Um, I also think that we're going to see a lot more competition for the higher ed space, meaning that Students, if they're going to value a first job more than a college degree, they are willing to do things like boot camps or alternative higher ed paths that will produce those results. Um, they also won't be shy in terms of saying, I'm going to take some online courses over here and some online courses over here and put those together to equal um, my own customized higher ed experience. So um, still a cool opportunity for institutions because it means there's a much larger addressable market of students they can work with. They're just going to work it with them in a way that they haven't previously. Yeah, that makes sense. Do, do you see a lot of these colleges starting to update their curriculums to like, you know, for example, is iOS development going to be <laughs> something people offer, you know, at, at these colleges? Because right now you think iOS development, you're going to go to a, a Skillshare, you know, yeah. com. you're going to go to like a master class, you know, for other pieces of content that are, again, like you said, more, you know, job specific. Do you see colleges starting to offer those things as well? You know, more specific courses? I do, and I think they're going to have to do them through partnership because it is hard to double down on building out an entire set of courses on a technology that will change, right? Like you just said, iOS, like who knows how long we're going to be um, prioritizing that or how long mobile will be our default, um, you know, user interface. That very well could evolve. There's things that you and I probably haven't even thought of that will be like the baseline of where most um, sure. humans interact uh through technology in the future. So I think that the thing you have to do is really look to where are the industry leaders who have the most cutting edge information about what I like to call new economy skills. The types of skills you have to have for the current economy with the fastest growing jobs related to them. And so instead of having to build out courses around all those things, when that information of how to do those things exists, I see a lot more affiliate partnerships happening. 
So you see something like uh, Harvard University and partnership with Skillshare brings you this course kind of down the exactly, line. Exactly. And that way you can, you know, leave it to the startup to keep churning out new courses about the new types of things students need to learn. But obviously these great institutions know a lot around how to deliver information to students so that way they can be successful. So the marrying of those two forces together, I think will produce, you know, a good ecosystem for students to learn in the future. That's awesome. All right. That was really great advice. And again, Megan, I know you got to run. I'm trying to be mindful of your time here. Uh, <laughs> it's a product launch week, you know, so it's just one of those things. Yeah. No, for sure. Absolutely. We appreciate you spending a few minutes with us today. Megan, for people that want to find you, where could they find you? Twitter, LinkedIn, what's the best way to reach you? Yeah, definitely Twitter. I'm at Megan M. O'Connor. And then you can definitely check out some of the stuff we're building in career readiness over at boostbykaplan.com. Awesome. Okay, great. We'll put all that information in the description of the podcast so you could reach out to Megan. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Super appreciate being here as well. Thank you very much.